นโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธมังสังฆังนมัสสะอ uh, Yesterday the was the last day of our annual summer retreat here, and uh, that Ajahn Abhinanda has been leading the last few years, and it was a it was a delight to talk to some of the retreatants who had been here for the week and uh, obviously gained a lot of benefit uh, from the opportunity and from the generous offerings of teachings and guidance and support. One of the conversations that I had was with a fellow who, uh, although he had had a um, some challenges during the retreat, uh, he was pointing out that now that he's uh, going home, he now the real work begins. Of course, he was referring to how it is when you're uh, in an environment that's not altogether conducive and supportive of uh, those. Heart aspirations, those uh, qualities that we uh, value most, and being here on retreat for the week, although it could be hard work, and I'm sure for most people at some stages it was, and for all of us, uh, various stages of practice, it can be very hard work. Um, but when there's support, uh, it, it's always easier when we feel supported and the environment is conducive and. Here in this lovely sanctuary, where it's quiet and everybody's keeping the precepts, and uh, that's something really to be valued. And so, his uh, his thoughts were about well, uh, what's going to help to maintain the quality of awareness, the quality of open-heartedness that he had experienced, and uh, the deepening that he had experienced during this week here, and. I think this is um, a question that is uh, good to regularly ask yourself: you know, What helps to protect the goodness that we've cultivated? And this uh, aligns with the subject I've been talking a lot about lately: the, the Buddha's teachings on the four right efforts. You know, the Buddha talked about the four right efforts of that effort to. Protect the goodness that has already arisen, and then there's the effort to give rise to the goodness that has not yet arisen, and then there's the effort to remove the unwholesomeness that has already arisen, and then there's the effort to avoid the arising of the as yet unarisen, unwholesome conditions, and these uh, four right efforts that I've been going on regularly about lately, uh, because they all matter. Particularly in this case, is, uh, when we have experienced some benefit in our practice, what is it that helps to protect this? And how do we, how do we, well, how do we take care to not just cling to the memory? That can happen when we've been on a retreat, and 
uh, or maybe we've had a good meditation, what we call a good meditation, which is always a slightly tricky matter, because uh, regularly a good meditation just means that we enjoyed ourselves, and we got something that we liked out of it, when actually a good meditation is when we just put some effort into it, it doesn't matter whether we got what we liked or not. But if we do experience some benefit from practice, there's the tendency to cling to that, to cling to the memory of that. And there's a tendency to, for instance, uh, go into thinking, well, you know, I could do some more of that. Well, if the retreat is finished and the thought arises, well, I need more of that, and we don't catch that thought, well, we can be sporting the goodness. That's something worth paying attention to. You know, when, when we do experience some benefit, to just cling to it and to want more is not always helpful. In fact, it's usually not helpful. Yeah. 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 It's an understandable thought, but it's born out of this uninspected idea that we have, the more the merrier. Now, the more the merrier, it just it doesn't, hold up under investigation. I mean, it's like, like food. You know, you're hungry, and you get some food, and you feel good, and you say, well, I'll have some more. Well, that might be all right, but it really might also be a disaster. And I mean, how much spaghetti can you keep eating? I mean, after a while, you, you can definitely want to stop eating spaghetti. Yeah, or, or some whatever your favorite treat is. You know, the more, the merrier is not, simply not true. It's deluded thinking. So that helps to be willing to look out for thoughts that just because we've had a good retreat or experienced some benefit from our practice, that wanting more, mm, we want to be careful about that. We want to watch that. All right, wanting more. Wanting more is just wanting more. Wanting more is, yeah, it's that. It's wanting more. But it doesn't mean to say we have to follow it. Wanting more is wanting more, but... What we do need to do is to see it in perspective. We can be so easily fooled by this movement of the mind that we refer to as desire or wanting. In itself, it's just so. It's a movement. But do we always see it as such or do we feel that it's me? Because of our habits of uninspected relationship to desire, we do so regularly believe it's me and then follow it. So the burning bright and then burning out is not the way. We probably, in various different aspects of life, our own or others, we've seen examples of burning bright and burning out. That doesn't help. What does help is constancy. And constancy is something that often requires modesty and restraint and humility, just because our effort and practice has led to some uh, good benefit, the idea of pushing it and trying to have more can spoil it. The way to protect the goodness that has already arisen is to appreciate the principle of constancy. Something, when Ajahn Chah was alive, he was talking about one of his great teachers, the Venerable Ajahn Man. And uh, he was talking about Ajahn Man as one of those rare monks who was constant in his practice. He didn't, Ajahn Chah didn't go on about Ajahn Man talking to devas and, and, and doing other magnificent feats. 
what he referred to was his constancy of practice is from the beginning right through to the very end Ajahn Man was constant and so I would suggest this is uh, really worth thinking about how can we pitch our effort you know we're thinking about right effort how can we pitch our effort and practice so we can keep going to get all fired up and inspired and shine bright that's fun that's that's like you know caffeine and sugar and vitamin b and give us a buzz yeah Uh, but we probably by this stage of life most of us have experienced also some degree of burnout yeah it's to be avoided yeah it's the the opposite side of overwhelm yeah overwhelm and then burnout and they come together and so that burnout overwhelm doesn't help constancy does help so it's worth thinking about in our case so we can't tell necessarily by looking at somebody else somebody else's level of constancy may not be ours it's like you know like surfing or skiing i mean if you're a really good surfer you can maybe do some really big waves but maybe doesn't mean you can do the big waves you're still working with the smaller waves still be good fun or skiing you know what sort of slope are you ready to take on you know or or lifting weights plenty of examples of how do we pitch it with humility recognition of our own ability there's a sense of being able to reflect for ourselves what works, what helps. Looking at the consequences. This is looking at the consequences of our effort. This is not just a new idea that somebody thought up. This is what the Buddha talked about 2,600 and something years ago and all the great teachers ever since. Looking at the result of the effort that we make, does this help or does this hinder? Reflecting, using our reflective intelligence that probably most other animals don't have I don't know whether anybody really knows about that, but most of them, I think we can be pretty sure, they don't have the reflective intelligence that humans have to look at our behaviour, to then feel the consequences. Does it help or does it hinder? And based on that, then we learn. And that's why we can learn. So, yeah, constancy of effort helps. Precepts help. And why do precepts help? Well, that's like when the Venerable Ananda asked the Buddha... Lord, what is the benefit of keeping moral precepts? The Buddha said, freedom from remorse, Ananda. It's not like, well, it makes you friends or or it gives you a nice complexion, or apparently it does. Apparently, you know, you get a nice complexion if you keep moral precepts in this life and in future lives. And and most likely, or more likely, that you have lots of nice friends if you're not somebody who goes around nicking and killing and... and, uh, (laughs) lying and so on that's not what the Buddha highlighted he talked about those things on other occasions but what he highlighted to his attendant monk it was freedom from remorse ananda it helps you feel safe yeah, when, we're, when we're taking care to protect our sense of integrity then part of the uh, spin off of that is a sense of safety yeah when we feel vulnerable, when we are vulnerable, or talking about a, a physical example again, the body, if we're, if we're weak or we've got a disease or our immune system is depleted, we're vulnerable 
to infection, we don't feel safe. We've got to be very, very careful where we go, washing our hands and what we touch and what we expose ourselves to. We are actually vulnerable. We don't feel safe. It doesn't feel good. But on the heart level, uh, when we're vulnerable, when we don't feel safe, we don't feel strong. We don't feel buoyed up. We don't feel held. We don't feel supported. And that takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of energy to sustain ourselves. Whereas the opposite is true, that uh, really looking at those principles encoded in the five precepts and then investing in the cultivation of those principles, that has the opposite effect. That strengthens the heart. It buoys us up. It gives us a sense of being protected. and So that helps. And so the yeah, as an example that Ajahn Chah mentioned when he was teaching an IMS in, in Barry, Massachusetts. Uh, I think it was Jack Cornfield that invited him to participate in a retreat that they were leading there. And, and in one of his talks, he, he referred to the retreatants. I guess he had been giving interviews to some of the retreatants. And, and uh, he, um, he was telling them, listening to what they've been saying about their lives, he says, well, he said, as far as I can make out, you're like a bunch of criminals, the way you live your lives, and eventually you get busted and end up in prison, and then you ask a smart lawyer like me to get you out again. He said, that's what this retreat is about. Basically, most of the time, you're living so unskillfully that you get burdened down with suffering, you can't stand it, so you've got to lock yourself up in a place like this until you recover, and a smart lawyer like me helps you get out again. But he said, you're going to go out there and just start committing all those crimes again. It's not clever. Of course, he was referring to the lack of awareness of cause and effect in our actions of body and speech in particular, that if we're not tuned into how our intentional actions of body and speech directly affect our sense of well-being, if we're not tuned into that, then we unfortunately get pulled into heedlessness and we do and say say things that bring remorse. And so, hence the Buddha's comment to Venerable Ananda, well, keeping the five precepts leads to freedom from remorse. And it's 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 like boosting our spiritual immune system. It helps. It makes the heart strong. Now, a lot of the teachings, when you read the classical teachings from the Buddha and uh, you hear the teachings of the great disciples, the monks and nuns and lay teachers who've followed the Buddha's advice, and you, you see that so much of this teaching is about how to, how to make the heart strong. We're not talking about the physical heart here, but the spiritual center, the core the point of balance, how to get strong in our balance, how to get strong in our centre, how to locate our centre and stay strong in our centre so that we don't get pulled out by worldly conditions, by praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and suffering, honour and insignificance. These uh, worldly influences that impact all of us whether we're wise or unwise or young or old or healthy or unhealthy, at any stage of life, all of us are impacted by 
what are referred to as the eight worldly winds or the eight worldly dhammas. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and suffering, honour and insignificance. Now, do we get pulled out of our centre by these influences or do we stay strong? Well, it depends on the quality of awareness or, or the nature of, in Pali language, the jitta, the heart. How strong is the heart? And so what we're talking about here is what helps. Constancy of effort helps strengthens the heart. Paying attention to our personal inner sense of integrity helps strengthen the heart. The way we engage experience, are we reactive are we pushing and pulling on experience? That, you know, according to our conditioning, if we're not uh, sufficiently sensitive, we can just be following our habitual reactions, you know, according to liking and disliking, pushing and pulling. And, and life can be such a struggle, such a tiresome, tedious struggle, and always trying to find agreeable experiences and get rid of disagreeable experiences. You know, wherever, if awareness is really matured and really developed, that the centre of the heart is really strong, all experience is just experience. Likeable or dislikeable, it's just so. Yeah. The heart of a realised being is not pushing and pulling, is free from struggle, is free from dukkha. So the way we engage experience, this, is, this makes a difference. Yeah. Paying attention to this... Gentleness. A strong heart does not mean to be a brutal heart. Sometimes you think of strong and you think of Hercules or Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) or whoever is out there symbolizing that kind of strength these days. There's also a strength in gentleness, the strength of kindness, cultivating kindness. Yeah. Cultivating patience. Yeah. Yeah. Think these soft powers of gentleness, kindness, patience, forgiveness. Yeah. Well, sometimes we think of them as we could think of them as being weak or insignificant. But you know, you look at somebody who's got patience. Yeah. You look at somebody who's really got patience, you know, who gets needles who gets tempted into reacting, into fighting back, but they don't, you can't help but respect that. But the word patience doesn't conjure up a sense of, well, that's amazing, how incredible, how patient is that person? And we don't tend to talk like that. But patience is profoundly important. Forgiveness is profoundly important. I was speaking this morning with the gathering who came here and, made offerings at the mealtime and discussing the memory of past hurt and resentment. There's a big difference between remembering hurt and bitterness, resentment. Now, do we have the subtlety of attention to see the difference and what makes the difference? Do we have the gentleness in how we apply attention to our own experience, to see this bitterness of heart that's burdening me is the consequence of this 
that I'm doing, this extra that I'm adding to the mental impression of the memory of pain. The memory of pain, past hurt, might be with me for the rest of my life, but there's a subtle difference, but a profoundly important difference, between that memory, which is just so, and that memory invested with resentment and bitterness. It produces a terrible state of being. Forgiveness is profoundly important, profoundly different state of being from just the pain. Like some of the, what percentage are we of water? Massive amount of water in the body, and it's obvious we can't be short of water. But sometimes there's something like maybe iodine. You know, how much iodine do you need? Not very much. The medical people here might correct me, but if you don't have it, you get a goiter. One of those very unpleasant conditions that have serious consequences. It's a trace element, and sometimes it's the trace elements that make the difference, and some of the soft powers, some of the apparently insignificant virtues that the Buddha extolled, like gentleness, like kindness, like patience, are profoundly important in strengthening the heart and in buoying up the heart so that those purveyors of the prolific publications of of gloom and doom that are are very evident in our world today, don't manage to pull us down into the sadness that's the natural consequences of that heedless way of paying attention. If we pay attention to doom and gloom stories, it's very likely that we get pulled into the collective sadness or the collective anxiety of the world. How do we avoid that? What helps protect us against that? A strong heart. How do we cultivate a strong heart? Well, we pay attention to these, these conditions. Last week I was speaking about respect and uh, I avoided uh, necessarily going into intellectualising about what we think respect means. That's a debate we could have. But I, I would suggest that all of us on the heart level we already know what respect is. We already know what it feels like when we receive it, when we don't receive it, when we offer it, when we don't offer it. We already have a sense of what respect is. What I was trying to point to last week was the possibility, the option that we all have for working on our relationship to respect. We all, on some level, know how important it is. You know, Ajahn Chah's quote that I was referring to last week was talking about that when mutual respect is missing in a community, then the community fails. And, and Now, we all know this on some level. We do need to be reminded of it. But also, it does help if we can get some hints on how to nourish these qualities. And all, all these virtues, like like uh, generosity, like gratitude, like selflessness. When we see selflessness uh, or humility or modesty, when we see these things and, and something within us is, is, is moved, we're often moved to tears. I know I can, if I watch a movie, it may be a pretty corny movie, but if it somehow 
has the message of selflessness, I can be in buckets of tears. It's very easy to be moved when we see these beautiful aspects of the human heart. So how do we nourish this beauty? We, We admire it. How do we nourish it? Well, actually, admiring it is one of the ways of nourishing it. When we see this beauty, when this is quickened within us, to make something of that. When we see selflessness, to consciously admire, to consciously appreciate it, nourishes that quality within ourselves. It's virtue within ourselves that recognises virtue within another. If we didn't have virtue, we wouldn't recognise virtue. And that's, that's good to remember. Like you're feeling that you're an unvirtuous, miserable get. Yeah, well, <laughs> none of us are that miserable. <laughs> yeah, if we can recognise virtue and be moved by virtue, then we, there is virtue within us. How do we cultivate? One of the ways of cultu- cultivating it is to, is to really dwell on admiration. Conscious, intentional admiration. Another way of explaining devotion. Now, sometimes devotion's got a bit of a bad reputation. Uh, again, it's like gentleness and kindness and forgiveness and patience. And devotion uh, can be seen as weak. But, mm, well, my experience and my observation and living with, with people who have it is profoundly important. Yes, it's kind of missing for a lot of followers of the Buddhist teachings and current Western traditions. Uh, but my conviction, my personal conviction and commitment is, uh, is very strongly uh, in favour of cultivating a heart of devotion uh, in this sense. Now, looking at it from the outside, somebody being so-called devotional may be you know, projecting all their spiritual power away onto some idol and making themselves weak in the process. But they might also be making themselves strong, because it's that which is beautiful within themselves that is expressing respect, that is offering respect to that which is worthy. So we can't always tell from the outside, but this investigation is primarily an inner investigation. What works? What helps? What strengthens my heart? Well, certainly the ability to offer respect makes a difference. I reflect back on my early years as a monk living in Thailand, and of course, like most of us, or like probably all of us here, I grew up, I certainly wasn't into bowing, not to another person, uh, bowing to somebody. Uh, I wasn't into it at all. And as soon as I became a monk, well, of course, it was just you had to do it. It wasn't an option. And it didn't come easy. In fact, it took years before I came to the conscious recognition that when I wasn't able to bow in a meaningful way, I was vulnerable. I was weak because I couldn't express respect. And it was a, it was a, it was a great relief to be able to let go of that rigidity of heart, that false strength like me and my way, uh, that we're all familiar with, uh, to some degree after a few years of, of leaning into the furnace and part of that rigidity 
being let go of, coming to some sort of recognition that it really helps, it really feels good to be able to show respect to that which is worthy of respect. And this is this helps, this is worth cultivating. Many of you will be familiar with the the Mahamangala Sutta, which I've quoted from many times before, the, the first stanza of that where the Buddha says in Pali, Puja Chapuja Nyanang, Etang Mangal Mutamang. Honoring that which is worthy of honor is the greatest blessing. Puja is to, to show devotion, to show respect, to honor that which is worthy of honor is the greatest blessing. Yeah, so certainly it's something worth cultivating. Now, this admiring a quality or appreciating a quality, the faculty we have, that's one thing. But there's all sorts of things we could be appreciating or admiring that you know, are not necessarily going to really benefit us. So that's the other side of it, what we admire or what we're uh, impressed by is also something we need to carefully cultivate. You could admire the, the technical expertise that goes into building a spaceship that can reach some distant planet and take photographs and send it back to us. And, but that, that's not necessarily going to free us from suffering. It's not going to show us the difference between natural pain and unnatural suffering. Yeah, that's wisdom that shows us that. And so we can be admiring something that's not necessarily wise. In yeah, yeah. appreciating and admiring qualities in others, yeah, again, use that reflective intelligence that human beings have to stop and say, does this help? Does this help? Like, and to really give value to that. Yeah, not just to... You see somebody being selfless and generous and then you recognize, oh, I'm, I'm so stingy. I'm, I'm such a stingy character, you know. I'm one of those ones that just takes from life. I don't give and I, I try hard, but I don't try hard enough. And we can get into this heavy judgment thing. Yeah. Well, that's not wise reflection. That is sort of reflection, but it's not what the Buddha was encouraging, which is wise reflection. So wisely reflecting on what our sensitivity picks up, that generosity displayed by that person is really beautiful. I'm really moved by that. I really respect that, that selflessness. They're not just doing it because they want to be praised. They're not doing it because other people are watching. In fact, they do it when nobody's watching. That's really beautiful, and you feel moved by that. I really respect that. To feel that, in other words, to consciously, intentionally appreciate virtue, appreciate beauty, the beauty of the human heart when it's virtuous is a way of nourishing those qualities within ourselves. To appreciate constancy of effort when we see it. Not necessarily to be admiring of heroes. We We can be moved into admiring heroes and and think that these spiritual warriors are what I should be like, but we need to be very careful about that. And, and, and perhaps the quality we more usefully admire and be impressed by is constancy of effort. 
and when we come across it, when we see it, and to really appreciate it, to, to cultivate the appreciative awareness. Appreciative awareness keeps us agile, yeah? keeps us agile, and we can see for ourselves yeah? this matters. This works. You're seeing the consequences. If we're just focused on developing concentration or certain states of mind or, or trying to strive for particular insights or trying to understand something with our heads, well, we can really throw ourselves out of balance. Yeah. We might be impressed by some of these brainy guys. You know, it certainly accords without the kind of education most of us had. You know, the brainy guys, they get all the all the marks, they get, they get all the money, um, but they're not necessarily people who know and have a deep familiarity with contentment and inner ease. So the ability to appreciate and admire and to pay attention to what we appreciate and what we admire. So coming across, if you have the good opportunity, the, the benefit of coming across these beautiful teachers who've, who've realized for themselves the benefit of what the Buddha taught. And I can remember when visiting Ajahn Mahabur, one of the great teachers of, of recent years in Thailand, and, and seeing him coming into the, the, uh, the main meeting hall in the monastery, Wat Bantat and Udon there, and first thing in the morning. And hey, he didn't stand around chatting with people. He just went straight to the shrine and and paid his respects to the shrine, bowing in front of the Buddha image. And you know, part of his going, so, well, if he's an arahant, if he's enlightened, what's he doing paying respect to this graven image for? Now, I don't know that I got totally caught up in that thinking, but probably I was wondering about it to some extent. You know, if he's already liberated, what's he doing that for? Well, this is the nature of a liberated heart to express gratitude to one's teacher. That's normal. Gratitude, generosity, patience, forgiveness is the natural activity of a heart that is free from, from greed, hatred and delusion. Mm-hmm. And similarly, living with Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Tate, being a, witnessing the, the genuine embodied humility of these teachers when they would bow to those monks that are senior to them even if maybe this particular monk wasn't necessarily somebody who was profoundly wise, but if he was senior in the training and he came to visit the monastery, Ajahn Shah would get off his high seat and get on the floor and show his respects. He was doing it with true authenticity, with true commitment. Now, some of these exercises I was referring to before about cultivating devotion and and learning perhaps to uh, use the form of bowing, using these traditional Buddhist conventions to help us uh, connect with these inner potentials, virtuous inner potentials that are going to strengthen our hearts and protect us from being pulled down into the swamp of sadness and depression that so many people are. We may not feel comfortable in the beginning, but I would like to encourage us all to to recognize again we need to be subtle in how we pay attention even to feelings of discomfort. If we're driven by liking and disliking, as we so often are, 
When something feels uncomfortable, we can be negatively disposed towards it. So, you know, I mention it here just to say, well, let's just, you know, hold back. It's like, you know, learning to do yoga. You know, if the teacher knows what he or she is doing, they'll take you to the point where you are a little bit uncomfortable and suggest that you gently, possibly, patiently hold it there for a while until maybe something softens and then you can go to the next step. Yeah. So it's just because something feels uncomfortable doesn't mean to say that it's wrong. Yeah. I was reflecting recently on the experience of learning to use a wood lathe. I don't know whether anybody here has used a wood lathe, but uh, you might have seen people doing it when you've got a, you know, this spindle and turning on a, on a mechanically operated lathe and you've got these chisels, various array of chisels. You, you've got a scraper and you've got a gouger and you've got a hollower and all these different chisels and you're leaning into the wood and you're gently shaping this piece of wood and... And you can turn some beautiful bowls and and beautiful uh, candlesticks and so on. And I was remembering how in the early days in our monastery in Wat Nana Chat in Thailand, we uh, the villagers I think rigged up for this this foot operated lathe. You know, so you you're not it's not a mechanically operated one. So not only are you having to learn to lean in with your chisels but you're also having to keep your foot going. And, of course, you only lean in when you're pushing down, and then you've got to lean out again. And it's quite a skill, and it's really uncomfortable. It's really testing. It's really challenging. Now, I gave the example recently of using a potter's wheel, where you've got this foot going, and if your lump of clay is over-exercised and off-centred, and you just collapse it and begin again. Okay, that's great. Now... With a piece of wood, if you lean in too hard, the wood's gone. <laughs> it doesn't come back again. You know, and you really look like a wally. You, you, you know, ruin a beautiful piece of teak wood there and, uh, and throw it away. Now, how do you learn? Am I supposed to be using a scraper here or is it a gouger or a hollower? or What sort of tool am I supposed to be using? And what stage and with how much pressure do I lean in? And what stage do I pick up the sawdust and, and learn to use that as a way of polishing it using the natural oils? How do I do that and how much pressure do I apply? And yeah, I'm sure all of us in our own way, playing a musical instrument or using a tool or learning a foreign language, yeah. It's worth reflecting on how difficult all of these tasks can be in life. And to remember that the way we approach the, <clears throat> this experience, you know, with patience, with gentleness, forgiving ourselves when we get it wrong, endlessly, you know, not just once or twice, yeah, and this is really useful, you know, we're talking about the constancy of effort in practice to be constantly beginning again to be constantly forgiving ourselves to be constantly cultivating kindness you know we can forget these things i don't know about you but i can you know i can be be caught up in something or other and then then it suddenly comes back so well a few years ago that worked why don't you try it again and not only does it work now, but even you can take it to another level. And this is called cultivation, 
developing skill and uh, remembering that constancy of effort really helps in this cultivation. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Antamayang namawadakata sadukarang dadamma sehi